0: You're listening to 340B Unscripted. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to 340B Unscripted. I'm Greg Wilson here with my co-host, Rob Nahupi, and we've got an extra special co-host this week, Jennifer Hagan. Hey, everyone.
1: I'm doing well. Doing well as well. We're all together here at our, our corporate um, uh, retreat for SpendMend and uh, hanging out with our full team that was able to make it as well as the rest of our SpendMend team here in Grand Rapids. So excited to do this one in person.
0: Lots of people walking around the lobby of the Sheraton Hotel here in downtown Grand Rapids, wearing three forty b unscripted podcast t shirts so large representation unfortunately, Rob and I left ours at home, so we are not representing well, but so disappointed. yeah. So this episode is actually going to be part two of our conversation with Emily Cook. So we'll, we'll have a break here in a little bit. And when we come back, Emily's going to answer a, a few more questions that we had on some 340B topics, but wanted to catch up on some kind of news and noteworthy items in the 340B space. Uh, this podcast uh, episode is going live, I think, on Monday, September the 11th. This is the last day for recertification for hospital-covered entities. So If you're listening to this, it might be too late now, but I want to make sure everybody's initiated uh, the process for for recertifying if you're a hospital-covered entity. Any curveballs that either of you have heard with regard to recertification this year?
2: I haven't heard any curveballs. I think it maybe isn't just clear what was needed to be uploaded. So, uh, Just... Probably a little late for some, but just making sure you upload all of the different portions of your Medicare cost report in in the individual pieces of S, S2, A and C, E, etc. But otherwise I think it's been pretty straightforward. Haven't had too many surprises.
0: Yeah, pretty pretty routine. No calls for unusual documents or documents that covered entity should have had prepared already. While we're talking about cost report information, just we have to plug, we're doing a webinar on September the nineteenth. Uh, going into the details of Medicare cost report, the trial balance, and how to create a trial balance crosswalk, which is a really helpful tool for managing all of your eligible locations, preparing for recertification, and also satisfies HRSA's uh, data request list for eligibility documentation for uh, for hospital-covered entities. Um, let's talk about revised or updated manufacturer restrictions in the contract pharmacy space. So we got two changes EMD Serrano, they've expanded restrictions to include all of the drugs in their product portfolio, and UCB has also um, removed the wholly-owned contract pharmacy exemptions, so those health system-owned contract pharmacies um, are no longer granted an exemption for UCB, and they've also established the 40-mile radius for selecting your single designated contract pharmacy, so this is par for the course, right, Rob? Pretty much, yeah. That's what
1: we're seeing is that continued
0: um, escalation of restrictions.
1: Uh, for dates, UCB's goes into effect on October 2nd, um, and, and EMD Serrano's is on 10-1. Uh, UCB did not extend it to grantees, so all the grantees listening, you're still um, not included in exemptions or, uh, uh, exemptions for UCB. Um, and then EMD Serrano, the one other, um, interesting one is because they increased the number of drugs. They only had a couple of their previously. So now it's all of their drugs. One of the drugs they highlighted was a Serostim. Hopefully I'm saying that right. Otherwise you can take back my pharmacy license. Um, and they, that's one of those specially limited distribution drugs that, um, that, that may not be part of your current uh, contract pharmacy network. So you can pick one of those specialty contract pharmacies that you can get access to. So just one
0: little twist on that one. Yeah. So one conventional retail contract pharmacy, and then a second, uh, designated pharmacy for the good. Is good how you say it i i i don't know maybe maybe i should retest for my license as well so all right um moving on uh, follow-up question and answer session we had a couple of weeks ago on the podcast regarding car t therapy rob tell us what we've learned since then
1: yeah, uh, so uh, one of our um, listeners and a friend, friend, friend of friend of the group, friend of mine, three hundred and forty B lead over at a, a covered entity, uh, didn't get permission to share this person's name, but do appreciate them listening and just responding. I Love the love the responses I get from from some of you guys out there listening, and, and feel free to always just email if you have our emails direct or three hundred and forty B unscripted at spendman.com. Did I get it? I, I got it right a couple months ago, so I, I thought I'd try it again. Um, and this was around that CAR-T therapy. And so what he he let me know is he did have one of the CAR-T vendors asking how how they billed for the drug, if it was outpatient or inpatient, and if it was line item billed. I think what they're getting at is is the final bill inpatient, and therefore not line item bill. And maybe they're thinking, well, we're not going to reimburse for that. Um, and then he did respond a little way later because I think he pushed back and they said, well, yeah, they changed their policy on 6-1 of 23 that just says the drug just has to be administered in an outpatient setting. So that was clarified. So it does appear that CAR-T therapy issues hopefully fix. Anyone out there, let us know if you're still having problems with um, when, if you identify or if you uh, say that a drug was outpatient based on the patient status at the time the drug is administered and you're getting pushback from CAR-T uh, therapy vendors. But it sounds like that might have been resolved, which is great.
0: Not directly related to that, but in the sphere of patient definition, we uh, have seen some movement with the Genesis case. So federal judge accepted uh, a few amicus briefs, one in particular. It was filed jointly by AbbVie, BMS, Lilly, and Merck, referenced Rob, you, and Riley in a SpendMed webinar. Tell us a little bit about what was described in the amicus brief and why we maybe don't agree with what was communicated.
1: Yeah. So first of all, these are tough. I, you know, we weren't aware we were actually in one. It's the first time I've been in an amicus brief. Um, it wasn't on my um, bucket list, so I'm not checking that thing off. But it, it was it was unfortunate. So one of um, one of the law firms uh, that support 340B covered entities um, was having a good discussion with one of the lawyers there, and um, shared that hey, did you know that you're referenced in an amicus brief and and not in a positive way? At least probably at least from what he knew about me and. And so he shared the amicus brief, which is public information. And in there, it said that, you know, Riley and I, when we did a webinar um, previously around referral capture and that in there, we had made some statements that were, were there examples of of why or how covered entities were inappropriately doing 340B and being compliant and so forth. So one of the things that they said, we said was that once a patient, always a patient and and we, we ne- and, and so you know and for me I'm like gosh did we actually say that so we went through and watched the webinar again we actually also get got the um, the transcript of it so we could go through and search the words to see if we ever said that and, and I, at least at least we couldn't find where we had said that and I was thinking maybe they took it out of context but the reality is I don't think we said it and here's and for everyone listening we would never say once a patient always a patient we always say that the patient has to be a patient of the covered entity you have to if you're going to qualify something as 340b you have to find a way to meet to to at least um by your policies meet the 340b patient definition or patient eligibility um based on the statute so we would never have said once a patient always a patient so just want to publicly refute that um again this this particular episode is dropping on september 11th which is the last day of recertification as greg mentioned so if you're listening to this on the day this podcast drops that's a reminder but also um, did hear from, um, you know, our colleagues over at 340B report. So they should have had an article last Friday. I guess this is a little dangerous uh, talking about this prior to it coming out, but worked with them. They're going to publish that as well. Just so everyone knows that's not what we said. If you read the amicus brief, I think it's important that when people quote you or say you said th- something and it's inaccurate that you say something about it. We don't think it's okay for anybody to say that we said something or, or even, um, say that we may, but we might've intended to say something when we didn't. And so just want to go on record and say, we would never have done that. We firmly believe in compliance with the 340B program. And, and yes, there's, there's some gray areas that you can talk about and use, but still you, the patient has to be a patient. The other thing they said, um, in there was that the, um, that once that we said that once individuals um, visited a covered entity, but has since stopped receiving healthcare um, and get prescription somewhere else that they could in fact be still a patient. Um, oh no, I know what they said, advising covered entities to capture 340B revenue for non-patients who receive all follow-up care at prescriptions provided and written at a private practice. And that's also not true, right? When we, we talk about referral capture, we feel there has to be a formal referral in place. And then in addition to that, if, um, if it's a continuum of care argument, which we've talked about, you still have to have care and be able to claim responsibility for care. So, so again, just, just not accurate to what we said or intended, um, again, could have been taken out of context, which would be the the kindest thing to say, um, at minimum or, or at the higher level, you know, just, I think maybe, um, they intended to, to not take what we said, um, accurately and, you know, for whatever reasons they have, um, decided to say what they said, but just want to go on records and talk to Riley about this, no intention to say what that we said in that, um, in that amicus brief and just going on record to say that. So hopefully
0: that, that sounded okay. Um, as I explained that. Yeah, thanks, Rob. So I guess procedurally, we still have this document that's on file with this particular court case. Is there a process to have that record corrected?
1: Yeah, so we actually reached out to one of the law firms representing uh, Genesis um, and provided some of this information I just shared. Um, so they can also pass that. So they have the opportunity to respond to the amicus briefs. And part of their response is they're actually reaching out. There's, it wasn't just us. They, they talked about quite, quite a few other firms as well um, over time. And so they collect this information. So they're actually going through and trying to communicate with each firm just to confirm, hey, is that accurate or not? Right. So I mean, some of it could be accurate. I don't want to say it's not. We can only speak for ourselves. But at least for, ourselves, for our part, um, we did uh, provide some, at least our response to it so they can share that with the courts. Um, so that way the courts can decide whether this am- amicus brief should stay or not. And I'll be honest, based on their representation of what we said, I I question everything else in the amicus brief now, right? If if we know that one's that far off, how how is everything else that accurate? That's other misinformation. Exactly. Exactly.
0: Interesting. All right. Um, Good topic. Next topic is uh, HRSA audit uh, notices. So the first Fiscal calendar for HRSA starts October uh, 1, and this is the time of year where you start seeing those first batch of HRSA audit notices going out to covered entities. Uh, Jennifer Hagan's here with us. She had a chance to look at the data request list that comes along with that HRSA audit notice, and there's a few changes from this year's version to previous years. So, Jennifer, let's let's kind of run through the different areas where there are some differences uh, compared to previous DRLs. So, first is... Policies, got some new language or some changing language in the types of policies they're expecting.
2: Okay, yeah. And let me just say, we've literally only had like four hours of notice here to take a look. And so, upon a glance, here's what we see uh, with policies. So, under data request list item number one, if you look at J and you look at L, with regard to the requirement for prevention of diversion and then for mechanisms to prevent duplicate discount, where previously the data request list would have stipulated that you need to explain how you're going to prevent that for contract pharmacy. Now it stipulates you need to pre- prevent, show how you're going to prevent this for all of your pharmacies. And so you just need to possibly beef up your policy and procedures a little bit.
0: Yeah, so it looks like HRSA is expanding the the scope of inclusion of all the pharmacy activity in your policies and procedures from their expectation of what you should have. Um, Another change with regard to, to, uh, this is item 2C. So for hospital covered entities, this is related to your uh, Medicare cost report and trial balance information. They specify an unbundled trial balance. What what do we think that means?
2: That what they want to see is information within your trial balance that would have your cost and revenue broken out by cost center so that it is a little bit easier to discern what are registerable locations. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So occasionally you may have a version of the trial balance that bundles or aggregates Cost centers into a single bucket, uh, maybe subspecialty clinics that roll up on line 90, or maybe other, you know, ancillary departments that maybe operate out of the diagnostic imaging department or your ambulatory surgery center, a version of the trial balance that you provide to HRSA must have cost center level detail for revenue and expenses for all of the departments um, within your hospital so they can validate location eligibility if they're offsite. Um, Section five is the purchasing order detail information, a little bit of change with regard to what they're specifying be included in the purchasing account list, which is 5A.
2: And you know it just was previously mentioned what type of account you would have, and now it just indi- it just says to indicate the pricing associated with each account, so probably just trying to make a clarification so it's a little bit easier to explain what the different uh, purchasing information is that you're providing. And uh, you know probably down the road, we can give some more information in some of our webinars or some education that we provide regarding a purchasing crosswalk, so more to come on that.
0: Yeah, they also call, call out the need to indicate whether a, an account's used for controlled substance purchasing, so seesaw C- purchasing, so I thought that was interesting. Section six is contract pharmacy documentation. They are specifying, I think, in six e, that you need to provide a list of all Medicaid fee for service, bin and PCN and, uh, and group IDs that are uh, part of the carve out list.
2: And you know, I think some previous in the audits that we've been involved with, this has been requested during the audit. So now they're just asking for it up front. So this is not really a big surprise. No.
0: Section seven was the new section last year regarding pharmacies that dispense 340B drugs but are not uh, registered as contract pharmacies. So these are essentially entity-owned pharmacies that could be retail, infusion, specialty pharmacies, even mixed-use pharmacies. They're not kind of specifying that parenthetically um, in the section header, uh, but are also uh, wanting covered entities to uh, indicate whether or not the pharmacies that kind of fall into this category are covered entity-owned.
2: Correct, yeah. So where they just asked for the documentation to demonstrate ownership, now it's just clarifying as a part of what you need to explain is that whether truly this pharmacy is covered entity owned or not.
0: And then this section also has the request for the list of Medicaid fee-for-service bin PCN carve-outs.
2: Yep, yep, no more.
0: All right. Um, And then I think the section that has the most changes, still trying to kind of (laughs) interpret this is section nine, which is your Medicaid billing info. So 9B and 9C. Um, 9B now addressing um, entity-owned pharmacy, Carvin. 9C addressing contract pharmacy, Carvin. They are asking for Medicaid fee-for-service billing information and an example of a claim from each of those types of pharmacies.
2: Yeah, and I'm not sure. was trying to listen. And so it was A is going to be your clinic administered drugs. B is for pharmacies that are not registered as contract pharmacy. And C is for contract pharmacy. So they just basically are saying we want claim examples for everything and want that up front.
0: Yeah. So, so for nine, a, I mean, we, we, we have good practice doing that. So you pull a UBO four for each carved in Medicaid. So what, what are we, what would we be pulling for a retail Claim Would it be a snapshot from the pharmacy information system, the hard copy prescription? What's, what do you think?
1: Yeah. I, I was thinking the same thing. I mean, it probably depends on the state, what the requirements are. But if it's a state that's a MEF state, then my guess is they'd want to see the claim and somehow the NPI number on the adjudication file for the NCPDP claim file. Of course, if it's a modifier state, whether it's an 08, a 20 or a 05 instead of an 08, whatever the state's requirements are, I'm, you know, in our audits, we actually asked to see that. So I would guess a screen capture perhaps. Yeah. Of where that is in their pharmacy information system but something that probably lines up with the state
0: requirements uh, for for medicaid duplicate discount compliance would be my guess yeah. Yeah. so again we, we've only been looking at this for a couple of hours but any just off the top of your head Jen, for any challenges with this you think covered entities are going to confront
2: yeah, any challenges i like you said i think it's just going to be interesting to see what we submit for this bill request but other than that no
0: for the Medicaid BIN-PCN carve-out list, what what are what do we think covered entities that are carving out out-of-state Medicaid going to need to do? If they're not licensed or certified to dispense out-of-state Medicaid, do, do we think they're going to need to track down all of the BIN-PCNs for all out-of-state Medicaid fee-for-service for a hers audit? What do you guys think?
2: They went there. Okay. <laughs> I, mean, I
0: don't know. What do we think? Is it, we're not, I guess we don't really know, right?
1: I mean, that's a tough one. All right, so this is one definitely for everyone listening. Um, I would probably get with your current third-party administrators. Many third-party administrators for the fee-for-service Medicaid side actually have a pretty good bin, PC, and group number list. They have cl- clients. If they're a big enough vendor, they have clients in every single state. So that most TPAs are pretty good with. Now, managed Medicaid is going to be a lot more spotty, and, and a lot of vendors don't actually act more require you as the covered entity to create your managed Medicaid bin, PC, and group number list. But fee-for-service ma- Medicaid I would think should be pretty good. So I would immediately ask your TPAs, you know, which states do they have you carving out in for contract pharmacy um, specifically and and get a copy of that list. So, because we we'll probably have to read it. Remember, even though I think HRSA would like to enforce, managed Medicaid right now, they're really focused on fee-for-service. And, and Greg, did you say it was fee-for-service that they mentioned? Yeah, they okay,
0: fee-for-service in the DRL. Yeah. And the
2: only thing is maybe I'd push back a little bit and just say we – we set our data up to exclude those out of state payers from going to the TPAs in the first place. And therefore maybe we don't even know what those have been in you know, or well not, okay, now yeah. I'm talking to I'm getting mixed up. But yeah. I mean on the retail side, they don't even bill a lot of times. So
0: Yeah, if you don't have a contract to bill uh, Ohio Medicaid and you're a pharmacy that's in Pennsylvania. Do you even need to provide HRSA with that, um, been in PCN from that state recognizing that you won't have the capacity to submit a claim to them? So, um, Jennifer, you've got some HRSA audits coming up and I think you've got a webinar scheduled for later this year to kind of kind of flesh out what we're learning from the, the DRL that's going out now and the HERSA audits on, on the docket for the next couple of months.
2: Yes. So in December, We will do a webinar that we will give some feedback on what we're hearing and seeing from the audits that have occurred as a part of this data request. So uh, listen in, touch base. That's about all I have. Thanks for having me. Thank
0: you so much for coming on. Um, yeah, we're going to take a quick break. When we come on the other side of the break, we're going to have Emily Cook back on. She's covering uh, some opinions that we asked her to share on the CMS Part B remedy. She's going to share a little bit of commentary on the intersection between the IRA and 340B providers, um, and also is going to address an issue that we think has flown under the radar regarding hospital dish eligibility, specifically related to Section 1115 waivers. Jennifer, Rob, is always great talking to you guys. Take care.
1: Thanks, Greg. Appreciate you. Yep.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: The
1: 340B Unscripted Podcast is brought to you by Spendman Pharmacy. Have you started using a referral capture solution to help maximize 340B program savings? Spendman Pharmacy delivers the industry's leading solution to help you identify existing and new referral capture opportunities. Our team manages and meets all HERSA expectations, so you'll never be at risk visit spendmen.com and follow the pharmacy links to learn how a referral capture solution can help drive 340b savings for your organization
0: all right next uh next topic i wanted to cover was the cms opps part b uh payment remedy that was uh communicated by cms at the beginning of july emily what are your thoughts on cms's approach to Uh, Remediating uh, covered entities that were subject to payment uh, reimbursement cuts uh, for Medicare Part B drugs back in 2018 that were overturned by SCOTUS.
3: Sure. I think in terms of the options that are available to CMS without additional legislative uh, authority or appropriations, the proposed rule is, is actually um, on the more favorable side of where they could have come out. Um, providing the lump sum payments provides immediate relief to the 340B covered entity hospitals that did um, suffer losses due to the payment cuts um, and the corresponding budget neutrality offset um, extending over the what they estimate to be 16 year period. Um, provides a, a soft landing in terms of the recoupment. You know, I think uh, in addition, the incorporation of the beneficiary cost sharing into that lump sum payment and the acknowledgement that they um, actually took away from covered entities more in the 340B payment reduction than they offset through the previous um, bump up in the budget neutrality adjustment, um, again, are all quite favorable. I know that there are many 340B hospitals and also non-340B hospitals uh, that would have preferred that CMS implement the remedy in a manner that did not result in recoupment of the prior budget neutrality adjustments. Um, I think certainly there are some arguments that HERSA had the discretion to make the lump sum payments without the corresponding budget neutrality offset. Um, However, I think there are some real um, questions as to whether HRSA, HRSA, whether CMS um, actually has to implement the remedy in that manner. And and I think absent instructions from the court that is continuing to oversee um, that remedy process, by the way, um, absent instructions from the court that would require CMS to implement the remedy solely through making the 340B hospitals whole without implementing um, a budget neutrality adjustment. I don't think that there is any obligation by CMS to do so. Again, I I think certainly there are some arguments they have the discretion to do so, but um, I I do think that um, it would require a court directing them to apply solely the lump sum uh, true-up payments for the hospitals without a budget neutrality adjustment for everyone else in order for them to actually do that. It it is a huge outlay of money as as it is uh, because of the mismatch between the um, reduced payments and the budget neutrality adjustment. But um, if we just look at what it would cost the government to make 340B hospitals whole without the budget neutrality adjustment, I just don't see there being an appetite for an additional $10 billion-plus outlay from the Treasury unless a court required CMS to do so.
0: Yeah, so hospitals out there, you know, have an understanding, some clarity around what their uh, lump sum repayment is going to be for straight Medicare Part B. What's going on with Medicare Advantage and covered entities that were subject to reimbursement reductions for uh, MA plans?
3: That is a question we've been getting a lot lately, um, as, as folks in the 340B space um, almost certainly noted. The remedy uh, proposed rule was completely silent on Medicare Advantage, and with Medicare Advantage now being, you know, about half of, of Medicare um, Medicare participation, that that is a, a big a big gap of silence and. It it certainly impacts some hospitals more than others, depending on the volume of Medicare Advantage. But for some hospitals, it could be, you know, much higher than 50 percent of their volume as Medicare Advantage. And so they're really wondering what what comes next for being made whole as to Medicare Advantage. I think, unfortunately, um, there is a a lot of confusion um, in across the, I think, stakeholder space as to how CMS fee-for-service payment policies intersect with Medicare Advantage payment policies. And ultimately, the payment rates that providers receive from Medicare Advantage plans are contractual. That is, they are negotiated between the provider and the plan. So in the first instance, as it relates to what um, the payments might look like and what the MA plan obligations are as to a remedy, providers should really be looking at those contracts to see what their contracts say, whether there is any potential um, contractual relief that they may be able to receive. Beyond looking at the contracts, um, it is a much more complicated process to address a remedy as to the Medicare Advantage Plans, because the mechanism through which they receive funding from the federal government and the mechanism through which the federal government oversees the rates that they pay providers is very different. Um, They are subject to annual um, bid processes there are provisions that limit the ability of the federal government to interfere in the MA plan contractual negotiations with providers. So, I think there's really two things for providers to be looking at. Number one is, I think, certainly in in responding to that proposed rule on the remedies, uh, reminding CMS that they have not done anything with Medicare Advantage and that they should be looking at what tools are available to them to address the remedy as as to Medicare Advantage payments. Um, Number two, making sure that um, in in terms of the potential for remedies that the providers understand what that MA plan process looks like and really evaluating is this an issue where it is going to be beneficial to put pressure on CMS or is this an area where they should start thinking about some form of congressional uh, intervention to address um, any remedy that may be appropriate for payments received from MA plans?
0: All right, one more question related to CMS Part B stuff. Um, And maybe this is a question that's better asked after the next general election cycle, but do you have an opinion on whether or not we might see CMS try to reduce Part B drug reimbursement in the future with a uh, future price survey?
3: It's a great question. I think certainly the statute allows for them to conduct a survey of uh, drug prices as it relates to payments uh, made to hospitals and how that would impact the future Part B payments. I think we uh, have the statements from the court in the 340B litigation that make it, I will say, reasonably clear that such a survey would need to encompass all hospitals and all drugs. Uh, Therefore, I would anticipate that if such a survey were done, those survey results would be not limited to payments to 340B hospitals for drugs, but would be more universally applied across all hospitals and all payments for drugs separately covered um, and paid under Medicare Part B. You know, I think, unfortunately, uh, if, you, if you do read the statute closely, it is, uh, again, reasonably, I think, clear that Congress, at the very least, um, intended to allow for CMS to make payments for drugs um, under OPPS, the Hospital Outpatient Perspective Payment System, uh, at the cost of those drugs rather than under the ASP methodology that they currently use at ASP plus 6%. Yep. So, you know, again, I, I do certainly think that there are reasons to um, believe that at some point in the future, we could be in a world where the payment for all drugs under OPPS is at a, a lower rate than it currently is. But I do not anticipate that that CMS is going to necessarily engage in that survey anytime anytime soon. I, I have not seen any suggestion that they are moving in that direction. And I, I think we would have some signals from them you know, well in advance that they were anticipating to uh, issue such a survey or adjust the payments for drugs under OPBS.
0: Excellent. So maybe we're nearing the end of this CMS Part B saga for 340B hospitals. Rob, any other questions or comments for Emily on Part B stuff?
1: No, I, I just appreciate, I was just listening. I was just, I was just listening there for a while there. I um, almost forgot I was on this thing. Um, no, I, I think I agree with everything Emily said. The managed uh, Medicare side is, it seems like that's going to be a long shot. Um, but I, but I agree that, you know, some of the health systems we work with, they evaluate it and it's, it's a large amount of lost savings in it. And I, and I hate to use the word fair or unfair, but it does seem unfair that these plans get to do the Get you know get the contract in a way that says we build like traditional Medicare, but then when traditional Medicare has some you know hiccup like with with SCOTUS in this case, and they're told that that was done inappropriately, that there's not really a mechanism to go back and immediately recapture some of that lost reimbursement. Um, and uh, but I do understand the med- managed Medicare plan's position as well. You know they don't operate the same way as traditional Medicare, and there's not really a great way for them to go back in time and recoup some of this loss, um, you know, I I don't know what they did with the extra or the reduced cost, right? I'm guessing it went to other operations within those uh, plans, and um, so hard for them to recoup that uh, in the same way and fashion. Uh, I just hope there's some mechanism for some recoupment of some of those lost uh, revenues because it did impact the hospital significantly, at least in some
0: cases. All right, let's move on. Talk about the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, There's a fair amount of chatter at the most recent Summer Coalition. We talked a little bit about it, Rob. But with the inflation rebate penalty calculations um, governed by the IRA, uh, covered entities now are going to have to, uh, you know, implement uh, some operational changes around, you know, codifying their 340B claims. So we have guidance from CMS uh, around the use of uh, Part B modifiers, JG and TV modifiers, um, and are awaiting CMS's guidance around how Part D, 340B claims need to be identified to scrub those from the inflation rebate penalty calculations. Emily, any thoughts on um, where that's all going to go for 340B providers?
3: Sure. All I can say is that I hope it goes somewhere other than where it currently seems to be going. Because right now, if you pull together all of the guidance available, it suggests that there is not a clear understanding at CMS as to how and when to use the various modifiers that are available to them. So just on the um, hospital side, um, and I'll say physician side as well, so generally for what are known as physician-administered drugs, those are drugs that are administered in a clinical practice setting as opposed to retail dispenses. There are currently three different modifiers for 340B drugs. There's the UD modifier which is generally used for Medicaid. There's the JG modifier which was um, and to some extent is currently used for identifying 340B drugs uh, dispensed by hospitals. Then there's the TB modifier which was used Uh, to identify 340B drugs dispensed by hospitals not subject to the uh, OPPS payment reduction. Uh, We saw in the guidance related to the Inflation Reduction Act the references to use of the JG and TB modifier, but then just in the most recent OPPS proposed rule, CMS seems to be taking a very different course of action and proposing that 340B drugs be billed using solely the TB modifier. And so right now it is, quite frankly, just a bit of a mess because I don't know whether CMS doesn't understand the difficulty um, with changing the way you code claims. It is not something where you just flip a switch and all of a sudden you can append uh, a new and different modifier to a claim. Um, And it's not clear why they are changing to just using the TB versus the TB-JG differentiation and and why they didn't choose the JG if they were going to choose one modifier between the TB and JG. It's also been abundantly unclear to me throughout um, the past several years why they decided to implement different modifiers on the Medicare side than they already had on the Medicaid side. So, um, you know, all I can say is that I do hope that there is somebody over um, at HHS who can really sit down and look at the different ways in which they need to or want to utilize information about 340B drugs and really harmonize that process. So, we're not put in a position where, in addition to what are likely going to be financial strains placed on 340B hospitals, We are really imposing additional uh, administrative and therefore financial burdens by not having consistent, clear, easy to understand modifier coding rules.
0: Do you think there's a solution out there that essentially omits the use of modifiers, retrospective data submission, kind of like what they maybe do in the state of Oregon? Any thoughts on that?
3: Yeah, you know, it's interesting, and and I think certainly something to particularly look at on the retail dispensing side. So, you know, with the implementation of the Inflation Reduction Act provisions, there is a need under the statute to exclude 340B drugs from those calculations, which means that the 340B drugs do need to be identified not just in the hospital setting, um, but also in the um, grantee covered entity settings as well as in the retail dispensing settings and again there are modifiers or in some cases more than one and confusing ones uh, for identifying 340b drugs Um, but certainly for the covered entities to the extent that there is an actual accurate way to identify 340b drugs without imposing those coding burdens again particularly in the retail side where you may not know a 340b drug was dispensed until after the fact, that would certainly, I think, relieve some of that burden. My concern would be that while there are kind of of back-of-the-envelope ways that you can do that work, I have not seen one of them that has the level of precision that would allow for identification of 340B drugs um, without potentially being over-inclusive. And while, you know, that over-inclusion may not be as relevant to covered entities if you're only using that data for purposes of the Inflation Reduction Act rebate provisions. Um, I think certainly uh, there is, you know, reason to believe that that data would ultimately be used for other purposes as well. And so to the extent that it is over-inclusive, we would worry about it capturing more drugs as being potentially 340B eligible, and then to the extent that there was an effort to adjust those payments or collect data or otherwise utilize that information, it, it could potentially be, um, be erroneous, over-inclusive, and, and lead to some adverse results for 340B-covered entities.
0: Interesting. Rob, any, any thoughts from you on the IRA stuff? I know we've we've talked about it a good bit.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, you know, the clearinghouse, um, you know, doing a clearinghouse, I like the clearinghouse idea the best. Just some way, mechanism doesn't include relying on everybody getting a modifier right prospect. Because Emily pointed out great, it's, most of the time it's, it's retrospective identification. So I do think it's going to have to be some kind of clearinghouse. But then worrying about is is that just for Medicare or will that data be released to manufacturers? and And does that get used to do other types of things that it wasn't intended for? So jury's up, but I do think the clearinghouse is the best option still, um, just for for compliance.
0: All right. I think we've got a couple of other maybe miscellaneous topics important to the 340B community. The first one's the um, yeah, section one, I guess a section eleven fifteen waivers and the impact that that might have on three forty B hospital eligibility. I want to share any thoughts, Emily, on the inpatient role.
3: Sure, I think this is something that may be flying a bit under the radar and I know we've been trying to get the word out, uh, particularly to our clients who operate in states that um, may be affected by the change in the CMS rule associated with counting 1115 waiver days and for those of you who are not familiar with it. for purposes of the DISH calculation, which is a very important metric for hospitals participating in the 340B program, other than critical access hospitals, because you've got to stay above those uh, 11.75 or 8% metrics to continue to participate. Um, there are Medicaid days that are, there's Medicare days, there's um, SSI days, there are various types of patient days as categorized by the payer for those days that go into those calculations. And um, there are states that fund their Medicaid programs through uh, various types of uncompensated care pools. They do these through what are known as 1115 waivers. Those are waivers they receive from the federal government of compliance with section 1115 of the Social Security Act. Um, and some of those states use those 1115 waivers and uncompensated care pools to make payments to hospitals for patients who do not have insurance um, and have received uh, inpatient services at the hospitals in the state. And there's been some ongoing litigation about this, but but what's what has been happening is that in Some states that have these uncompensated care pools, and specifically, and hopefully I'll get this right, Texas, Tennessee, Kansas, Florida, Massachusetts, and New Mexico, I think I got that right, Um, there have been hospitals that counted the days um, of uh, the Medicaid days of patients for whom their care was funded in part by those uncompensated care pools. So in other words, because the Patient was an inpatient and a, some portion of their care was funded through the state Medicaid program. They counted those patient days as being Medicaid days for purposes of their dish calculation. Um, CMS uh, several years ago uh, took a position that they were gonna exclude those days. There was litigation, the hospitals won. Um, and in response, um, CMS said that they would go back and um, they would include those days uh, that the court told them that they had to include. But going forward, they um, proposed to and now have finalized changing their rules to exclude those days from the Medicaid patient day counts. And what that means is that for hospitals in states that have these programs that were including those patient days um, in their dish calculations. If they are now required to exclude those days it could result in their dish percentage falling below the necessary percentage to participate in the 340b program Mm -hmm. so it is very important that hospitals in the affected states take a close look at their dish calculation methodology um, that they determine whether they have historically calculated those days um, and what this change may mean going forward Uh, for their 340B participation. And and we have been hearing from clients who do believe that they are materially impacted by this change and that they may in fact lose their 340B eligibility because um, if they are required to exclude those patient days, they'll fall below the threshold. So, uh, you know, again, this is not something that is going to impact all 340B hospitals. Uh, but uh, for hospitals uh, that are in those states that, that may be impacted, it is really important to take a close look at those DISH numbers sooner rather than later so that you are not um, surprised by falling below the threshold or are able to further parse those numbers to determine whether there um, are other, other patient days you're not currently capturing that may allow for you to continue to be above the participation thresholds and continue to participate in the 340B program.
0: That's yeah, concerning, especially for, you know, hospitals that wh- whose, you know, dish has also been impacted by, you know, o- ongoing, you know, COVID impact. You know, we've had a number of covered entities that we worked with that, you know, had to submit uh, attestation under the Consolidated Appropriations Act to uh, retain 340B eligibility because they just, they, their operations haven't really, you know, resolved to pre-pandemic levels and have been struggling with a disproportionate share percentage below uh, the threshold, this is only going to com- compound that issue um, if you're in a state that's subject to the uh, Section 1115 demonstrations.
3: Yeah, and I, I think it is just, and, and maybe this is really more of a note for all 340B participating hospitals, um, or at least those that have historically been on on the cusp of those participation thresholds, It is critically important to ensure that you are monitoring your dish percentage throughout the year and that you are aware of how you are calculating the dish percentage uh, because there are sometimes uh, ways that uh, those numbers can be looked at differently or at a more granular level that can get you over over the threshold if you uh, may be falling below it. But if it is the night before the cost report is going to be filed and you discover that you've fallen below the threshold, um, it, it generally is going to be too late to engage in some of those activities. And there is then a very real risk that you will be out of the 340B program for some period of time, even if you can ultimately get back over that threshold.
0: Great point. Rob, I know that's a tip that I've heard you share with, with covered entities. You really have to do a preliminary assessment of your disproportionate share percentage midway through the fiscal year to understand where you're trending.
1: Absolutely. And, and, you know, it's something we did at my previous health system. Uh Rich Iverson, my partner would at a corporate office would report to all of the 340B hospitals, what your dish percentage runway is for the year. So you knew if you're turning up or down and you know, there's always a catch all, you know, after the year ends, they're still working on um, charity care, self, uh, self-paid patients who do qualify for Medicaid, who, but who didn't register where in, you typically can get the uh, patient registered for Medicaid and then you can, for some period of time, back bill those visits, right? So there's that opportunity and that's a lot of work and a lot of cases sometimes, especially when you're short staff, you're not able to work all those accounts so they just end up being charity care write offs when in, in effect, many of those patients do qualify for Medicaid. And so if you can get that work done but you sometimes have to put resources at it to be able to pay those Medicaid patient days. Um, there's another one that we like to remind people of not everyone does it but there's a way in, in most states for when a baby's Born to to be able to use, you know, you don't have the baby social security number at first, and you don't have them on the, the health plan, so a lot of times the baby's bill just gets lumped into the mom's bill. But there is a way to separate it if they're Medicaid. Um, again, you have to check your every state might be a little different, but mo- most states we're aware of the fact that you can it, once you get the baby social security number, you can actually register the baby separately, so the mom and baby's inpatient days count count separately, which means you have more inpatient days um, on Medicaid, so it increases your um, numerator uh, as well. So there's a couple of strategies that we looked at, but the biggest thing I think is making sure you're working with your reimbursement department, that you know how many days, and, and sometimes like we were told how many days we would need based on the, the denominator um, when the cost report closed. So we knew how many inpatient Medicaid days we had to pick up through, you know, a retro process um, to qualify them. And, and I agree with Emily, if you only know, you know, a month or weeks before your cost report files, it's just not enough time to get it done. So something you should be monitoring all year long for sure.
0: Well, we're coming up on time here, Rob. Do we have any other questions we want to ask Emily? No,
1: uh, I can't think of any. Emily, you you've been fantastic. I've always appreciated your um, your your information that you share on the 340B program and, and your perspective. It's always useful when when I get to talk to you. Well, th-
3: thanks for having me. This has been this has been really fun for me, um, and uh, I'm I'm happy to answer any any future questions that. Uh, that you guys have or that uh, that your clients have. And um, I know I am frequently out at the 340B conferences and uh, am really just uh, always interested in hearing from folks out in the field and on the ground about what uh, they're seeing with their 340B programs and the ways in which uh, they are really challenged to, again, achieve the really opportunity great opportunities that the 340B statute affords to covered entities and, and making sure that folks are, again, able to take full advantage of what Congress intended them to do with with the 340B program.
0: Emily, before we go, I got to ask you a question. What's your favorite thing to get at In-N-Out Burger, being from Los Angeles?
3: I, I like to get the grilled cheese animal style. I do occasionally get a cheeseburger animal style. But my go-to is the grilled cheese animal style, and if you're out here and you are not getting your In-N-Out Burger animal style, you're really missing out. So just order it animal <laughs> style. You'll get those those mustard grilled onions, which are quite tasty.
0: The raw nice. animal. You do the animal style, right? I well, my sandwich I don't,
1: but I typically get animal style fries. So they Fry. put the onions and the extra sauce on the fries, which is kind of, you need a fork to eat it. I'm going to be honest, that's not a finger food. But they're yeah, animal,
0: animal style with the green chilies on a burger is a messy, a messy meal, and I try not to eat in front of anybody. But it's 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 pretty good. So
3: that is good. I, I will say the the spicy peppers I think are an often overlooked condiment at at In and Out. So that's also an important thing is to ask for the spicy peppers.
1: Well, Emily, I didn't know. So on the last episode, Greg talked about. It. We were talking, and he said, "Oh, do you get the green chilies?" I was like, "I didn't know there were green chilies." So I, I have to go back and get some green chilies and try. Yeah. I'll try an animal style with green chilies.
3: Yes, I like to take the green chilies and actually just squeeze the juice out of them um, and, and put those on fries or on my burger or grilled cheese.
0: See, this is this okay. is a trend now. We're just every week we're going to do In and Out burger <laughs> recommendations. Maybe we'll get a sponsor one day. <laughs> maybe, maybe. <laughs> well, least we
1: know you have to run. You've got a busy schedule. But again, thank you for your time. And um, yeah, hopefully we'll get to catch up soon.
3: Great. Thank you.
0: Thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll catch you next time. See you, Rob. Thank you. Have a great week. Thanks for listening to 340B Unscripted. Subscribe today on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.